Welcome to Session 9, The Missing Stories, Families and Survivors of Sepsis and COVID-19. This is easily the most personal and the most touching session of this year's Congress, with seven people sharing their personal experiences with sepsis and COVID-19, including the real-world implications on their lives. The session is moderated by Arika Pripa from the European Sepsis Alliance, whose husband is a sepsis survivor himself. Arika, take it away. Hello and welcome to the ninth session uh, of the World uh, Sepsis Congress. It is really great to see you all virtually because you are all in a different part of the world today. Thank you for staying up late or getting up early to connect with us today to share your story. My name is Aurika Pripa. I live in Belgium. My commitment to joining the European Sepsis Alliance as a volunteer was sparked by a personal story. A few years ago when my husband had a septic shock. Um, that was uh, uh, caused by pneumonia and bacterial infection, leading to multiple organ failure, necessitating ECMO treatment and intubation. He survived, but uh, this resulted in an amputation and eight months in hospital. It was the first time when I, uh, uh, in my life, heard of sepsis. Today, I'm humbled and honored to moderate this panel discussion, the missing stories, families and survivors of sepsis and COVID-19. We have a distinguished panel and resilient and kind people of different backgrounds and ages whose life was impacted and deeply changed by surviving sepsis uh, or COVID. They agreed to share their life stories which give us a chance um, to understand what is really going on uh, behind the scenes and behind these strong personalities. So well, welcome to, uh, to all you, my panelists. I'll introduce each of you separately, just before your story. We'll hear their story first and then have a um, discussion round uh, and questions from the audience. I encourage you to be short and of course in focus, and uh, if you send a question, tell who this question is for, uh, and that you can submit in the chat area. So uh, with that introduction, and without uh, um, further ado, I would like to welcome Mick O'Dowd. Um, Mick is a 47 years old, married with two children, mechanical engineering uh, prior to sepsis, he lives in Sydney, Australia. Mick was fit and healthy until he contracted sepsis, um, but, where, but there were serious delays in spotting this. His arms and legs have been amputated. Hello, Mick, and good to see you. Hello. Mick, when you and your wife, Catherine, sought help in the emergency department, tell us really what happened. Tell us your story, please. Hello, this is my story about sepsis. I started to feel very unwell coming up to Christmas 2018. On Christmas Day, I started to feel very sick with flu-like symptoms, with a very severe pain in my right glute muscle. The pain was quite bad, but it did not stop me from doing anything. I used to do a lot of cycling, and I thought it was just an injury from cycling. However, on Christmas Day, I started to feel very unwell. 
That night, the pain increased so much that I asked my wife to take me to the emergency department. I arrived in the emergency department at about midnight. I spent approximately seven hours waiting in the emergency department. In that time, there was no blood tests taken or observations taken. I was given pain relief and some anti-inflammatories and sent home. No antibiotics were administered. The situation started to deteriorate very quickly. I went back to the emergency department at 7pm that night after being sent home from hospital that morning. I went into septic shock. I was transferred to another hospital and was admitted to ICU. In less than 48 hours, I went from being healthy to on life support. I had a strep A infection which caused necrotizing fasciitis and led to sepsis, which progressed to septic shock. I had my right glute muscle removed, requiring reconstructive surgery on my right side. I was in multi-organ failure, on dialysis and a ventilator. Over the following weeks, I had my arms amputated below the elbow and my legs above the knee. I had an intestinal infection resulting in a colostomy. I had a tracheotomy and I was ventilated for six months with ongoing pneumonia. I couldn't speak or eat for six months. As part of the infection and sepsis, I lost skin on most of my back, below my hips and my legs. This required extensive skin grafting. I spent five months in ICU, followed by four months in the burns unit for skin care before being transferred to rehab. I spent a total of one year in hospital before I was discharged. During my stay in ICU, I was unable to communicate with the staff. My wife, Catherine, was my advocate. She was in with me every day, and so was my family. Without this support, things would have been very, very, very different for me. Having my family around was so important. Having my children visit me in ICU was very important to me. They allowed my family extra visits because I did not think I would survive. But because of them, I did. Having my family around made all the difference. It was so important and should be not underestimated. Since being discharged from hospital, I've had to have more surgeries. I've had to have infections removed from my residual limbs and I've had my right shoulder replaced due to avascular necrosis. I've had a total of 24 surgeries. Early recognition in the emergency department could have led to a very different outcome for me and my family. If it was picked up on my first presentation in the emergency department that I had an infection and not muscle pain, it would have been a very different outcome. I was diagnosed with sciatica and sent home. I've never had a history of back problems. If the emergency department had acknowledged that I did not have a history of back issues, it would have forced them to look for alternatives to my pain. My wife had told the doctors that I did not have a history of back issues, but they did not take notice. It was very tough on my family to see me so sick for so long in hospital. My wife was critical to the stay in ICU. She was a link between me and the doctors. <coughs> she would speak to the doctors as my advocate and involved herself in every decision to make sure of the best possible outcome for me. My wife brought my children in regularly to hospital to visit me. It was very tough on them, but it was important for me to see them. It was one thing that kept me going on through a very difficult time. Once I was finally discharged from hospital, 
life did not return to normal. I am permanently in a wheelchair and I need 24-hour assistance. It affects our daily lives in many ways. It is not straightforward for us to go out as a family. I have to check for wheelchair accessibility. I have to check for ramps, make sure there are no steps and there is enough space for me to manoeuvre in the wheelchair. Going on family holidays takes an enormous amount of effort. It is not as simple as making a booking and going. I have un been unable to return to work since I had sepsis. I've only just begun my prosthetic journey. It has taken a year to have a functioning myoelectric prosthetic on my left arm to replace my hand. I have just started to use a body power prosthetic to my right arm due to my shoulder replacement. I've only just started to work on my lower limbs, but this will be extremely difficult for me, being an above-knee amputee and the muscles I have lost in my right leg. If the emergency department had changed their thought process from ruling sepsis out to ruling sepsis in, it would have been very different for me. Sepsis was never really thought about on my first presentation. If sepsis was considered on my first presentation, I would not have had to spend so much time in hospital and it would have been a very different outcome for me and my family. Thank you. Thank you, Mick. It's, uh, thank you. It's a really deeply moving story. And thanks a lot to, to go through and live those moments. Mick, how many hours do you think before they responded with antibiotics it took them? I counted around 24. It was about 24 hours before... From my first presentation to the emergency till I got antibiotics was about 24 hours. So early recognition in the emergency department could have been a very different outcome for Nick and his family. So all he's asking is rule sepsis in before you rule it out. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I would like to move on. It's going to be difficult, but given the time constraint we have and and all the stories that is there to be shared with you um, and would like to welcome Katie Granger as our next uh, speaker. <sighs> um, Katie's married, lives in Seattle, has two beautiful daughters. She also partly lives in Hawaii. She was fit and healthy until sepsis uh, uh, happened in 2018. When she, uh, when she became ill then, she thought that it was just a flu, but uh, was admitted into the hospital two days later with a life-threatening septic shock. Doctors uh, saved her life, but were unable to save her lower legs and seven of her fingertips. Katie joined the Board of Sepsis Alliance in January 2020 and has been sharing her sepsis patient experience to enlighten others about this really horrible syndrome. Welcome, Katie, and thank you for staying up uh, uh, late today for us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And Mick, thank you for that powerful story. Can we, can you tell us, uh, you know, you know, the, you and I and all of us know the golden rule of sepsis. You know, if you are not <laughs> going to spot it fast, get antibiotics and you, you're going to end up either dead or amputated. So this is pretty shocking, but we have to tell you that. Yes. Before telling your story, can you please remind us what is this sepsis? And because the statistics are incredible. Thank you. Yes, for that. yes, I think it's really important. Um, so, sepsis is not an infection and it's not a disease, it is actually a syndrome. 
and it is always in takes place in the presence of an infection. Any type of infection can cause it, um, a viral infection like COVID, or um, oftentimes a bacterial infection, fungus, or a parasite also can cause it. And what it is, is it's a body's overwhelming response to the infection. In other words, your body kind of short circuits and overreacts to that infection, causing inflammation body-wide, and then that inflammation causes damage to tissue. And that can include organ failure, um, damage to your extremities, as in my case and mixed case, where um, we ended up losing body parts because of it. And um, it's, a, it's a horrible syndrome. It affects up to 47 to 50 million people worldwide every year. 11 million people die from it. It has been determined that about 20% of the world's population dies from sepsis. One death every 2.8 seconds. And um, then as Mick pointed out, and as you'll hear, I think in a lot of our stories, the survivors go on to have lifelong consequences often from having sepsis. And um, I believe that's the same thing with COVID, with the people who have long COVID as well. Thank you, Katie. And I think this number is uh, is uh, even uh, possibly underestimated because the data uh, on incidents, uh, you know, and outcomes are often poorly captured in low and middle income countries where access to care is difficult. Katie, thanks. Tell us, Katie, what happened to you? Thank you. And I just want to add to that. It also is in not lower income countries because it is a syndrome. Oftentimes they'll attribute the deaths to the underlying cause, such as pneumonia, strep throat, kidney failure, things like that. They don't, they don't attribute it to the sepsis that actually caused the death. So that's something that, that we're working on globally trying to change that. So to my story, um, as, as you said, two and a half years ago, I nearly died from septic shock. And my story began with a small infection on my thumb. And it was just a little purple spot that um, was a raised bump. And it had an opening in it that had a little bit of fluid coming out of it. And um, I noticed it on my finger on a Friday evening. I had just been traveling to visit my children away at college. And I had come home to Hawaii. I had just flown on that long six-hour flight. And I happened to notice this this, um, little thing on my finger. I don't even know how I got it. I don't know what the injury was, but I had this infection. And um, my husband at the time was on a fishing trip, so I was going to be home alone for the next week. So on the way home, I thought, you know what, this infection's kind of strange. It might be like a staph infection or something, which I've never had before. And I thought it might be kind of serious, so I'm just going to stop by a walk-in clinic on the way home. So I went to this clinic, and they determined that, yes, it did appear to be a staph infection just visually, but um, they took a um, culture to be sure, but it was going to be a couple of days before they got results back. So because my vital signs were strong, my blood pressure was fine, my temperature, my breathing rate, my heart rate, everything was fine. They went ahead and gave me antibiotics to um, an ointment to put on the infection. And then they told me that over the weekend, if I started, if it seemed to be getting worse or getting bigger, that I should start taking the oral antibiotics. And um, as I mentioned, I was home alone. So over that weekend, I don't have a lot of memories, but I do, I have, we've put together kind of what happened. So Friday night, I was very tired and I just attributed that tiredness to traveling. And I didn't consider that it could possibly be because this infection was kind of starting to overwhelm my body. Um, So I was sleeping quite a bit. On Saturday morning, I woke up and um, I decided it was time to take an antibiotic. And after I took that antibiotic, I vomited, I threw up and um, I texted my husband at that time. And I told him, I said, 
gosh, I have this infection. Um, I just threw up, but I think it was only because I took an antibiotic on an empty stomach. So don't worry, I'm fine. I just assured him that I was fine. And he thought, okay, well, you know, she's fine. She says she's fine. I'll believe her. And I do know that I was taking my um, temperature all weekend because as a mother, I've always believed that, you know, when your child has a fever, they get to stay home from school because they're sick and they might be contagious. And I assumed that if this infection was becoming more severe, I would have a fever. But that was a misconception. I was wrong about that. You do not need to have a fever to be incredibly sick. In fact, when I got to the hospital, I still did not have a fever. So, um, and I was near death at that point. So, I mean, it's it's just, it's something that I think we've come to understand that we believe that that you need to have a fever to have an illness, and that is not true. And sepsis is one of those exceptions. Um, then um, over the weekend, I continued to sleep a lot during that day. And, um, and like I say, I was missing these signs that it could be something worse. So I didn't worry about going to the hospital. On Sunday morning, I woke up, it was now 36 hours later, I woke up at the crack of dawn, which means it was just the, the sun was just coming up in Hawaii. And um, I texted one of my friends who knew that I was homesick. And I said, can you please come get me and take me to the hospital? And she texted back and said, well, um, would, could we just go to the emergency clinic? It's much closer. It's about 15 minutes away and the hospital is an hour away. And I texted her back and said, no, I can't go to the hospital. I have never been so, I mean, I can't go to the emergency clinic. I have never been so sick. I need to go to a hospital. So she rushed down to my home, um, came in the house and found me lying in bed, nearly unresponsive. And I was pale and I was barely responding to her. I did not seem well at all. So she suggested we call an ambulance and I made another mistake. And I said, no, I don't need an ambulance. And I'm worried that if you call an ambulance, our neighbors might call Scott or text him or something and he'll be scared. So I didn't want to scare my family. And I didn't think I was that sick. I just thought, oh, it's just a precaution. We're just, you know, making sure. And I think it's common for people to sort of underestimate how ill they are. And um, that was another one of the many mistakes I made. So we rushed to the hospital. On the way there in the car, I began crying, which is really unusual for me or for a lot of people. And I started saying, um, my hands and feet are on fire. And I said, can you please hurry? I need to get there. My hands and feet, they hurt so bad. They feel like they're on fire. So she called the hospital. She told them that she was really concerned that I did not have the flu, that this was something very serious. And they met her at the, um, at the emergency room with a gurney and took me in immediately. And I was taken into a room and they took my vital signs and they determined that my blood pressure was 50 over 30, which is deathly low. They were very concerned. So they immediately, fortunately with, in, with my experience, although I was sent away from the emergency clinic 36 hours before the walk-in clinic, the hospital recognized that something was very, very wrong with me. And they immediately began a sepsis protocol. So they withdrew blood from my body to check for a pathogen. They began fluids and um, a tremendous amount of fluids trying to raise my blood pressure. And they immediately began giving me um, broad spectrum antibiotics. But that was great for them that they got on it right away. And it was very important. And I'm sure that that saved my life. But if you remember, it's been 36 hours since I started getting sick. So I waited a very long time before I got there. So I spent 24 hours in this hospital. Over the first day, my kidneys began to fail and my lungs began to fail. And um, I um, started in the evening, my hands and feet began started 
began turning purple. And um, I was diagnosed at that point. They identified that I did indeed have sepsis. They knew that I was in septic shock, which is the most severe form of it. My organs were beginning to fail. And I had a condition called disseminated intravascular coagulation or DIC. And what that is, is I was getting blood clots in my hands and feet, and it was it was ruining my circulation there. And they were terribly worried about me. So it was decided that I would be transferred from the small community hospital that I was in on um, the island of Kauai, which is one of the smaller Hawaiian islands. I was flown by airplane the next day over to Honolulu, which had a much larger hospital that was better able to care for me. And before I was flown over, I was intubated and I was put into a drug-induced coma. So I I um, got to the hospital on Monday morning, which was about 24 hours after I had gotten to the first hospital. And my husband at that point had been contacted. He was in Wyoming in a remote area. He was able to get out of that area, get to a major city, catch an airplane, and he met me at the hospital. When he saw me, there was so much fluid in my body that I was unrecognizable. I actually weighed as much at that moment as I weighed when I was fully full-term pregnant with each of my children. I had about 25, um, uh, 25 pounds of fluid in my body that was in addition to my own weight. I'm a very small woman. I only, I'm, I'm about five foot one inches. I weigh about 110 pounds. So it was quite a significant increase in my body volume. Um, I was taken immediately into the ICU. My husband was told that I was not well and that he should call my children and he should have them fly from the mainland to be with me the six hour flight because they were worried that I might not survive. So they spent five days with me in the ICU. And during that time, the small mark, I, I initially had purple just on this part of my hand, my entire hands turned purple and they watched as my fingertips and the soles of my feet turned black. So five days later, I was brought out of the drug-induced coma and the tube was taken out of my throat and I was able to breathe on my own. But even though I was breathing, my oxygen levels were still very low. And I attribute, the hospital obviously had a huge amount to, 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 of credit in saving my life, but I really think that having my family there, like Mick mentioned, it was so important for me to realize why I wanted to live, why I wanted to fight, because they were having to wake me up and make me do breathing exercises, take these big, deep, deep breaths. And I remember I was complaining and telling them to stop and to leave me alone and let me sleep. And if, if I had been alone, I'm sure I would have just slept. And I'm sure that, I, I mean, I, it really concerns me that I probably would have died had I been alone. I really just think that having people with me was so important. So I ended up um, spending three weeks in this hospital. During that time, I went through painful um, nitroglycerin treatments on my hands and on my feet every eight hours. I was receiving very severe antibiotics that were causing me to have no appetite. I was unable to keep any food down. I lost, um, I, now I've gone from this extremely high weight, all the fluid is now out of my body and I lost an additional 20 pounds or about 20% of my body weight over the next three weeks because I was just in, unable to eat. Um, we were able to save my hands with these treatments. Oh, I forgot one important thing. I also went into a hyperbaric chamber every day um, when I was, once I was conscious. And um, this was to hyper oxygenate my blood in hopes that we might be able to get oxygen down to these areas that had been damaged. Um, it did save my hands and I will show them to you quickly. I do have the palms of my hands. I have some small fingertips, but I have both of my thumbs, which really is important for my hands to function well. We were not able to save my feet. So once I was able to admit this, it, honestly, it took me almost three weeks for me to be able to say 
that I knew we couldn't save my feet. And um, once I admitted this, we stopped all treatments and my husband began talked to me and we as a family decided that instead of staying in Hawaii where we had been living for 10 years, we would fly back to the mainland because they had bigger hospitals that were better able to handle my post um, sepsis care. And I had friends and family that were there and we had a, a house that we could stay in there. So we flew home to Seattle. A week later, I had my lower legs amputated. And then it was my choice to go ahead and wait an additional few weeks till I healed some to come back and have my fingers amputated. And then two months after my legs were amputated, I got my first prosthetic legs. And this was sort of the beginning of my getting literally back on my feet. And um, over the next few months, I learned to walk. And over the next couple of years, I have learned to ride a bike, to drive a car. Um, and I can do a lot of activities, but there's still many ways that I'm limited. Thank you. They, they say that time heals, yet in reality, it doesn't. You know, some days it hurts a bit less, probably. Others, it's still as, as raw as it was back then. So I would like to thank you, you know, Katie, and thank you, Mick. What is important that you really walked us through very skillfully through some important signs and gave us some some tips and you know you know what what to do and some admitted some of the mistakes and we all have them. Be empowered with the knowledge and advocate for yourself and for your family. So that's that's one of the key message also coming out. Thank you, Katie. I would like to welcome now the next speaker, who is Zara Zara Hedult Bond. Zara is a South African living in New Zealand. Zara paid a very heavy price. She lost two loved ones to sepsis. Her brother died at the age of 31 and her mother at the age of 51. Since then, she made into her mission to learn and speak and spread awareness about sepsis. Hello and welcome to you, Zara. And thank you for staying uh, up late. And please tell us your story. Hi everyone. Sure. Um, I've got tears and I'm taken aback by the stories before this and I can deeply relate to the previous stories that I've just heard. My heart goes out to you for your journey going forward. Um, so sepsis is urgent and that's what these stories before mine has showed us and it needs to be acted on immediately. I lost my family, my brother in 2015, like Orica mentioned, and my mom in 2017. Um, I paid the highest price due to sepsis, ultimately, and it could have been prevented had it been acted on earlier. With my brother, I blamed myself for overlooking and downplaying um, his initial leg complaints. Um, I was overwhelmed at that time with my daughter, who was also sick, my newborn. Um, with my mom, even though I was more aware of what sepsis was and I had a bit more knowledge, my mother still succumbed to it. Um, there was a serious delay in South Africa, you know, getting proper timely treatment because the symptoms of her having food poisoning was always drilled into her and not sepsis. Um, it was maintained until it was way too late and she had organ failures i.e. sepsis shock. The toll this took on me was immense, physically, emotionally. I've had to get help to get past these traumatic events. Because of my experiences, I am very determined to help share the awareness about sepsis, which I am doing since, 
I'm hoping to work with um, the New Zealand Sepsis Trust um, towards advancing that goal. I found healing as well in helping look after palliative care clients in New Zealand. Um, I want people to know and talk about sepsis by its name, not by food or blood poisoning or an ulcer or natural causes or pneumonia, because sepsis is an emergency and death can be prevented by acting fast, both by patients, families, doctors, clinicians, in coordination. Sepsis should be identified as a separate contributor to disability and death, stating clearly sepsis as a cause of death as well when this is the case and not tuberculosis or pneumonia. This would allow its management and optimal treatment in the future. I know most of you attending the World Sepsis Congress today know about sepsis, but less so the general public. And therefore, it still needs to be put into the mainstream, like cancer or heart attack or pneumonia or COVID even. Now more so with COVID-19 pandemic, sepsis should be known as it is, can become a pathway to death from COVID to pneumonia and ultimately sepsis. Um, I want everyone beyond doctors and academics to know sepsis by its name. Sepsis needs to be mainstream. Thank you. Thank you, Zara. Sepsis indeed needs to be called by its name and because it's an emergency. And if you are down with symptoms, if you imagine yourself, say, Arika is down, uh, you know, I need help. If you would go to the street and ask for help or say, I suspect she has sepsis. Do you know how many people will raise their eyebrow? And if you would say, I suspect she has a heart attack, everyone would start calling and uh, acting very fast. So this is what we're aiming at. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our next speaker is Mohan uh, Ramaswamy. Uh, Mohan is a COVID survivor. And uh, the, the two speakers um, are the, the COVID survivors. And we're moving from sepsis to COVID and then back to sepsis and then back to COVID. Um, Mohan uh, lives in, uh, is it Chennai or Senai? Okay. I live in Chennai, India. Yes. Chennai. Um, Mohan lives in Chennai, India, and became ill with COVID um, uh, back in October uh, 2020. Um, it he was hospitalized for 14 days, and as a as as a 70 years old diabetic, he was fearing that he could become a statistic. Um, he will share his story, um, but also very curious observation as the journalist lying there in ICU. Actually, he went for the first time in his life too, and I see you. He will also share a very sad story about losing his mother and, and the importance of uh, communication and empathy um, more than ever. Thank you, welcome uh, Mohan, and the floor is yours. Hello everyone. My, my heart first goes out to the sepsis survivors who told the stories before me. I think it's really tragic. A disease could take away parts of their body and make them you know, semi-dependent on so many, uh, on, on mechanical uh, feet and uh, hands and things like that. I'm really, truly sorry for that. As a COVID survivor, I'm not certain yet uh, what, what fate will hold for me. We don't know yet what long COVID is. But going into the hospital, I, I took an Uber because I didn't want to endanger any of my family and to drive me to the hospital. So I rushed in there thinking that I could very well be a, a statistic uh, as a comorbid uh, diabetic 
that I could easily be, become just another person who had passed away from this disease. But, you know, uh, what I would like to tell the people is that we took every precaution possible against this pathogen. We had no visitors. We stayed at home mostly. And uh, we nano-cleaned the home. We, we took every kind of precaution that you could to stop COVID from coming in. But somehow that pathogen had crept in home. My sister, my sister and my brother-in-law, who lived probably 100 meters away, they were the first to fall ill. They had been home because we had a home bubble that our closest kin were coming home. And uh, they fell ill first. And then uh, I, I, when I saw the scan, when my scan came out, the result came on my phone, I knew immediately that we were all in great danger. And I took an Uber and rushed straight into the hospital because I had friends there. I'd called them and said, I'm coming. And I got myself admitted in the COVID ICU uh, portion of the hospital to begin with. But, you know, by, I was probably lucky that I fell ill in the end of October by when doctors knew a lot about this disease. Having dealt with it for almost 10, 11 months, they knew a lot about COVID. And there were standard protocols like remdesivir and uh, dexamethasone and an anticoagulant uh, treatment that was already in store. And the doctors also knew uh, when the great danger would come. They could predict that the desaturation could occur on the fifth or seventh day. So they were probably uh, more aware and looking out for this. All the health workers around me were looking out for those signs. And when my uh, uh, oxygen level started going down, that's, that's when uh, we had a really a crisis point. But I must tell you, I, I go a little further in my story to say that my mother was living with me. She also fell ill from COVID and she was also admitted to the same hospital and she was in the COVID ICU while I had been transported into the main ICU. But uh, although my family and I were in constant touch with everyone, nobody had told me. They, they probably didn't want to inform me because, you know, the obvious threat to a person already ill and in hospital that would probably scare me. So I wasn't informed. The doctors didn't tell me. And I had no idea my mother was ill until some, somebody who called me uh, dropped a hint that he, was ask, he asked me specifically about my mother. Then I knew something, something was up. So maybe I was just thinking that uh, if I was mentally strong enough, and I, am, I, I would like to think I'm a mentally strong person, I should have been told that my mother is also ill because she's 91 years old and her chances of survival were always less. And uh, the moment I left hospital and came home within a day, my mother had died. Uh, being 91, she, she couldn't take the treatment. She was completely oxygen dependent. And the doctor, under doctor's advice, I couldn't even go and do the lost rites which in my kind of religion, it's, it's, it's almost like a, it's a very painful experience not to be able to attend your mother's uh, funeral, uh, nor do the last rites. In fact, I, I offered, I offered to go in a PPE and do the last rites and be there, but the doctor said no. I, I would be endangering society, plus I would probably be spooking the people around by going around in a PPE to the, uh, to the burial place or the, the cemetery. Uh, so... I didn't. I didn't go there. And the, the other point I would like to make now is, is very. It's about a question of ethics. The day uh, desaturation hit me and my oxygen levels were going down, I had uh, told my family that the, I didn't want to be intubated. Having read a lot about this disease for about seven, eight months, and since I'm an editor of a newspaper, I, it was my job to keep track of everything what was happening. So I knew the whole background of the disease. So I'd given it in writing that I didn't want to be intubated, whatever happened, that if there's a natural cure possible, if oxygen could cure me fine, 
but please do not intubate me and put me on a ventilator because we we have a we have a fear of ventilators in india because the survival rate i'm told is not very very high the people going on ventilators always think of it as a final ticket to out of this world so i said please please don't put me on a ventilator so there's a huge argument going on and even the hospital administrator had to rush down to see what was happening and i was arguing my case saying that i didn't want to go on the ventilator some of the doctors said no we have to we can save you only if you put on the ventilator and as this thing was going on there was a very young intensivist who who saw my point he said as a 70 year old instead of putting on a ventilator let me try a, a, a really a tough kind of mask to wear i'm not certain about the technical term but this is a mask that uh, introduces oxygen at pressure into your lungs so the what it which is a, it's a bit like wearing a space suit it sits right on your nose it's very claustrophobic but i but the doctor said this is your last chance you got to wear this so for two days i went in with that mask and uh, the 30 30 liters of oxygen were uh, pumped into me and within two days of using that uh, n95 i'm not certain about the name but n98 or something they said with that mask i was able to recover and uh, come out much better and then they stepped down the oxygen levels until uh, it was down to 2 liters of oxygen is all i needed and within a, a couple of days again i did i could breathe just the room air so it is quite a, a miraculous recovery for me having heard how this uh, disease has taken away so many people it is a great thing to know that i was recovering and then i move on to the last part of my uh, presentation i would like to say that there was a janitor in my icu who used to come in every morning to disinfect the place he would he would come in wearing all the ppe he would disinfect the place and he would he would he would be the one who would come right up to my bed and say don't worry nothing will happen to you don't worry nothing will happen to you that's all he said but that was so comforting to hear from another human being inside the icu and being in a covid icu uh, nobody else could come in except the uh, nursing staff who were all wearing ppes not even the doctors the doctors also used to wave to me through the glass my uh, daughters my sons in law would all come at a appointed times in the day visiting us they would also wave to me from outside the class so you know I, it is a very lonely place the icu is almost a timeless place you don't know what is night what is day and for someone like me who was affected terribly by insomnia during the covid uh, illness i couldn't sleep the whole night and you know the only one the only way i could make out was when the nurses changed stations i knew a new day was born you know this almost illogical desire to have a coffee as soon as the day is born used to keep me awake but luckily for me i had taken my cell phone along with me inside the icu i don't know if that is allowed it's up to doctors to say that and i i was able to follow some podcasts even see a movie see some cricket matches keep myself uh, somewhat entertained even as i couldn't sleep so that was very helpful so i said you know beyond family who were absolutely supportive i also needed a device to keep my mind awake so you know uh, taking a cell phone in seemed a, a kind of solution a, a technological solution so maybe should the doctors allow this should hospitals allow an icu patient to be able to even say even take a small television set inside or you know something like that and the, the other thing that i wanted to say was would it be better can i be uh, would i be able to communicate to my doctors i mean they, they would tell me they would tell exactly what situation i was in to my family and they would text me they would send me messages saying this is what it is this is what the doctors are saying but would it be i think it would be far more reassuring if the doctors some of the best of them in the city were treating me that they, they couldn't speak to me and tell me 
at what point I was in, my, in, the, in the disease, nor could they tell me what is the prognosis, what is the diagnosis, what is the expected time of uh, stay in the ICU, etc. So I, I'm thinking that maybe there should be a two-way communication, even, even maybe a, a, a speaker phone or a, or a speaker inside the ICU so that people could come and talk to you instead of just waving to you from the class. Would they be able to uh, come in and have a form of open communication? Is that allowed? I mean, this is up to doctors to uh, decide and the hospitals to decide because, you know, people I know, uh, like Mick has spent a year in ICU. He must, must be the loneliest thing in the world. Uh, really, really amazing that someone could come through that. And But to live in an ICU without any contact with the world is a tough thing. And maybe medical science should be able to find uh, some way in which they can communicate to their patients, tell them what, what is their illness like and what, what, what is the uh, prognosis and etc. I, I think this would be far better. And having made such technological advances, it should be pretty simple uh, in a way for doctors to, communication, to communicate more with their patients and help everyone, keep them informed of uh, where, they, where they are. So that, that, that really is my story. Thank you, Mohan. Thank you so much. In COVID-19, the role of families really has largely gone. The relatives aren't around in the intensive care unit to mentally support or, you know, fill in the gaps for them, you know, so while, while they recover. But um, this is, you know, even when, when, when they are passing, you know, during their passing, the family is not there. So this is really tough. So bringing back humi humanity, humility, communication, transparent, uh, uh, empathetic is important. Thank you. And I like it. One word, don't worry, you will be fine. You know, that's, that just saves you. Just one single word. Thank you for sharing that. I would like now to move on and welcome uh, Zohaib, Zohaib Muhammad. Zohaib is, um, is also a COVID survivor. He lives in Karachi, Pakistan, is a qualified professional in critical care, works in ICU at Aga Khan University, Hospital of Karachi. He's actively involved in both uh, Global Sepsis Alliance and the Sepsis Alliance of Pakistan. With the COVID patient in ICU, he was extremely careful in the hospital, but he let his guard down when he went to visit friends and family on one of his days off, contracted COVID, uh, was never hospitalized, but was uh, quarantined in, at his home. He'll share his story, that it was actually very hard to be a patient instead of an ICU doctor, when he knew so much about COVID and about the treatment and different possible outcomes. So that kept him a little bit agitated. And he'll also say what he, you know, did uh, when he was back as a doctor, back to ICU life and the changes, the little changes he made um, at ICU. So he, a very well welcome to you and the, the floor is yours. Thank you, Arika, very much uh, for the nice introduction. Uh, as Arika told that I am a critical care physician. Hearing the stories of uh, my panelists, uh, participants, it's very hard thing. Uh, I can clearly understand uh, because day and night I am working in ICU. Uh, before COVID, I was looking after the surgical ICU and medical ICU, and now I'm solely wholly working in a COVID ICU. I clearly understand the pain, the misery the family goes through, and the patients itself. Uh, there are little things which can be done to improve the outcome of the patients. Uh, so, uh, heads up to uh, make. 
the story which inspired me and the ketty as well uh, the dic the simple small infection on a hand leading to some life threatening uh, sepsis and septic shock uh so to begin with i was the first consultant in my hospital who started services in covid icu way back in march 2020 uh as it was the first wave in our hospital and in pakistan as well so we were very much aware of the sop so i followed all the sops of the hospital and remained safe during till november 2020 uh during that period i have almost done Uh, around 30 to 35 intubations because in our hospital there was a particular team who was involved in the airway management of the covid icu covid patients in the ward floor or emergency department and uh, i was also um, uh, almost done a, all, uh, we do a week system here in our icu so i have done almost uh, uh, in that period of time around 8 to 10 weeks in a covid icu so i have seen fairly a large number of patients with a active covid disease in my icu as well as well on on the floor as well for the intubation for emergency services uh, then i took an off because uh, my hometown is in other province of the pakistan that is punjab uh, mohan knows the punjab so i went there to uh, my to see my family because my parents and uh, uh, my children are there uh, children are there uh, so my wife is also a doctor so she also got an off and we went to our hometown and uh, there i I mean, uh, I remained there for a week and enjoy my vacations there. On the last day, on coming back to my home uh, uh, again to my uh, Karachi, I had a small uh, gathering with my friend uh, for a dinner, and they were also all also doctors. Um, uh, so we went to dine out. Uh, uh, as that the, at that time there was not a very high much peak of the disease as well, and the government has. low down its restrictions for an open uh, out dining uh, purposes uh, so i uh, uh, had a dinner and then i left for uh, karachi after reaching karachi for two days uh, then i started to feeling uh, started to have the symptoms i came to my hospital i was not feeling well so i told my authorities that i am not feeling well i, I am going back to home and then i went back to home and thinking of that i i must be suffering some upper respiratory tract infection like symptoms it's not covid i, I was totally in a denial phase uh, I, i just received a call from a friend uh, who was out with me in a dinner he told me that he is also suffering fever and he is also having symptoms of like a parasite then i uh, that it uh, started coming to my mind that i must be suffering might be suffering from a covid uh, i made up a mind for almost 4 uh, to 6 hours to make so got myself tested and i also convinced my friend as well to get tested and the other fruit friends which were involved in our dine out uh, they were all asymptomatic so we both were tested positive and uh, as uh, uh, actually in our hospital it uh, took around 10 to 12 hours to report that uh, i am covid positive um it's just still the same process that covid pcr came positive around 10 to 12 hours later uh so uh that was a big flash of light in my mind uh, that i am suffering from the covid i was seeing the patients uh, in the icu in the ward on the floor as well and now i am suffering from the same disease the other thing was that uh, my wife all the way traveled with me from punjab to karachi it took around 10 to 12 hours uh, so i was thinking that she might be a victim of this disease as well so uh, she also got tested and god forbid he came out to be negative uh 
uh, I got myself quarantine uh, in my home. Uh, uh, we were both uh, me and my wife was alone in my home and apartment. I suffered uh, the first initial five days were very bad. Uh, I suffered from high grade fever, myalgias, loss of appetite, smell. Uh, I bought a uh, uh, I arranged home oxygen as well. I bought a pulse oximeter as well uh, because in my mind I was. Every day in the morning, I was thinking of the worst complication of the COVID, which I have seen, like in a patient with uh, respiratory failure, stroke, uh, um, mortalities in the ICU, uh, and the COVID uh, have behaved in a very different manner. Some people not suffering from diabetes, but the serum sugar went into 400. So I got my test. All the tests is done. Uh, some of the colle my colleagues were ringing me and uh, telling me that uh, don't to be worry, uh, all things will get well, but uh, in my mind, it was I, I was I, it was so much information in my mind. I always start digging up. Uh, as you all know, um, you give a presentation on a COVID complications right today. It will change in a twenty four hours because the data is so much coming from the every part of the world. Uh, the people are trying different disease uh, uh, treatment options. So in the morning, I uh, every hourly I was checking my saturations, my fever, and. Uh, I was always on a mind digging the new literature about that, and uh, and I, I was not treating myself because I called some one of my infectious disease consultant to please look after me. I cannot make a decision for myself. Uh, it's very difficult for me uh, to uh, decide whether to start anticoagulant or not start anticoagulant because in COVID, it's I have seen my resident uh, neurosurgery resident went into a, a just 25 years old a man. Uh, he developed stroke after COVID. And he developed stroke after COVID was, uh, he was fully recovered from the COVID after hospital discharge to three to four days. Uh, he never went into respiratory failure. He never have a, a high grade fever, but he uh, went into complication of stroke. So uh, the uh, my wife always being there to support me. Um, he always trying to say that things will get better. He will try to divert my mind as well because we cannot, He she cannot come into my uh, definitely in my room but he always uh, she always uh, calling me on my mobile phone um, uh, talking from the other side of the door uh, don't be worried uh, everything will be fine uh, uh, everyone in, uh, is praying for you uh, uh, but being a doctor and uh, being a patient it's quite a different story uh, i uh, it was uh, the quarantine was also so depressing because you know that I um, I was seeing the COVID patients. It's a busy routine schedule in my hospital for me. Um, it's from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, seeing multiple, uh, giving the anesthesia to multiple patients, doing the ICU rounds, doing the patient discussions. Uh, and now I was sitting lonely in my room and no one other and just seeing, uh, searching the uh, database for any new treatment for COVID. God forbid, if this happens, I will start this. If this happens, start this. So uh, I remain uh, quarantined for 10 days. Then my symptoms started to disappear. Uh, so as WHO advised, I never got tested again. Uh, I um, got myself, uh, uh, the quarantine was DC, but it almost took around two weeks to get myself the energy back. Um, after the COVID was over, uh, the mind was, uh, I was, uh, the mind was full of questions. Uh, what happened next? Uh, what will be uh, uh, either uh, I will be again on a, uh, on the same track which was I was already doing, or I God forbid I got some other complications. I got myself a tested 
thrice twice the inflammatory markers now mohan will know that uh, the inflammatory markers they doing and uh, uh, i was uh, uh, also uh, arranging the home nursing as well for the backup of that uh, mohan said that that the bipap uh, the mask he wear that is called as a bipap machine that is very uh, i clearly understand i uh, uh, the high pressure air which is coming uh, to the patient and it is very uncomfortable table to breathe in that uh but god forbid uh, it was all over after uh, almost around 2 weeks time uh, that i was back to again to my ic to my patients but the, uh, the as orika told me that after i suffered from covid there was more empathy towards from me to my patients because as i have suffered from this disease uh, so i now after that i clearly recognize what the family thinks the what the patient thinks uh the first thing i made realize to my hospital colleagues and uh, the other co- my icu uh, doctors colleagues so that we have to arrange something that the family attendants can meet or they can communicate with our uh, patients as well so uh, after a, me- a couple of meetings with the hospital uh, administration uh, the, our uh, cmo and ceo was kind enough to arrange high def cameras and that cameras can be zoom in zoom out and the family can talk to the patient as well uh, they they were uh, they can talk any time because our nursing staff make arrangement for that and uh, so that it can be helpful the other thing i i i, I realized that uh, the um, mohan can clearly understand in our part of the world uh, people want to be with their loved ones at the time of terminally ill so they want to say the goodbye or anything like that they want to uh, pray for them so uh, for that i also uh, uh, talked to the administration and after a uh, after a fight uh, after fighting with them for that that we have to make some arrangement as well for that so now our hospital have also arranged that if the patient is terminally ill and we have counseled the patient that they this patient is not fairly a bit of chance of survival so the one of the family members can put an ppe uh, complete uh, sign a consent and then he can or she can walk into the uh, icu to meet uh, meet their loved ones so it makes an impact they they started to feel that they are in a, in touch with their uh, family uh, the family is also giving the care because uh, i think so that uh, by engaging the family in the patient management uh, they feel that they are a part of uh, doctor's team uh, who are looking after that they can do a couple of things uh, just mohan say that it was very uh, it was a, a one person coming to icu and saying that uh, you will get better and don't worry uh, you will get this is this is the thing uh, uh, we have also start i have also started to regularly visit my patients in the isolation room as well before that uh, mohan was right people were what mary were afraid to going into the uh, covid unit uh, to see their patients so they actually see the patient on uh, cameras uh, uh, in the glass windows and then they uh, uh, do not uh, also do not meet the attendants they only ring them and told them this is this is this is, this is the problem so uh, i have tried to bring some culture change in our covid icu with the installed cameras with more interaction with the patient and if patient is terminally ill so allow some of the attendants to visit personally with the pps this so is this- really great and really makes an impact because it makes an impact for the better recovery but also builds trust you build trust with the patient this is thank you so much for sharing, sharing that zohaib i think we're a little bit slightly behind the schedule but we still want to go through the stories and i would like to na- now invite uh, annette 
um, uh, the last two people, um, in fact, they didn't go into the hospitals, um, and uh, um, uh, but nonetheless had COVID and sepsis, and they will tell you what what it meant for their lives. Uh, Annette is from Germany. Uh, in Nepal, she got uh, she 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 got sepsis. Um, which was not recognized. She will tell her story. I'm, I'm going shorter here. But what is important, important is that she knew nothing about sepsis at that time, was shocked when she learned the, the death figures for Germany. And with her professional background as a communication scientist and organizational developer, she now works for the German Sepsis Foundation to advocate for better survival and rehabilitation. So, uh, Annette, uh, over to you now. Thank you very much, Aurika, and thank you for all of you, all of you sharing your stories. Like Katie, I had my sepsis in 2018, and like Katie, I had an injury on my right hand, on my right thumb, which was hit by a rose thorn while gardening. This was on a Tuesday. The injury was painful, and after two days, I could only move the thumb with pain but I did not go to the doctor, but took ibuprofen. On Saturday, I felt worse and worse and became very weak and stopped eating. I thought it was that when I couldn't even imagine getting up and picking up our older son at a birthday party by car only 10 minutes away. And I didn't. I stayed on the sofa. That night, from Saturday to Sunday, I was scared as never before in my life and had an unusually clear perception I felt a knot come loose on my thumb and move along my elbow. At the level of the elbow, it disintegrated. I was terribly afraid, felt very unclear, like hypnotized, but neither myself nor my husband had the idea to call an ambulance. Sunday morning at 6 o'clock, I went to the nearest hospital. I walked to the nearest hospital. There was no real wound on my thumb anymore. I described my symptoms, which I had over the past six days, clearly to the doctor, who dismissed or almost ignored them. You don't have anything serious. Go back home. Rest and keep taking ibuprofen, he said. I went back home, felt extremely unwell. There was this huge fainting inside of me. I felt and I knew the doctor was wrong. But what else could I do? I took ibuprofen and I tried to have a nice day with my boys and my husband. My boys were three and eight at the time. In the late afternoon, a doctor friend called. She knew about the injury and she wanted to know how I was doing and immediately asked how many milligrams of ibuprofen I had taken. 1,500 milligram in the last 24 hours, as much or more than ever before in my life, giving birth to two children. She spoke briefly with her husband, who was doing his specialist training in emergency and intensive care medicine at the time. And he immediately sent me back to the same hospital and told me to stop taking ibuprofen. And reassured by this advice, wearing a winter jacket in spring, deadly pale and weak, I went back to the same emergency and could finally convince the doctor to take at least a blood test. My temperature was high, which was helpful. The blood test visibly showed a very strong inflammation in my body, 
The whole right side of my body was already swollen at the time. It felt as if the two halves of my body had separated. The doctor gave me a dose of antibiotics for the evening and for the morning and to take home. And this antibiotic is a general antibiotic given for injuries with street dirt. Around 11 p.m., I got high temperature and very strong chills. I called at the same emergency room and asked the doctor what to do. His answer was, there's nothing we can do more, only hope and see if the antibiotics work. This was really hard. I saw a dark being in our living room. It was waiting for me to take me along, but I didn't want to come. It was another horrible night like the following as well. In the morning, I went to my longtime family doctor. He was already retired and occasionally received all patients. He was immediately alarmed when he saw me. The results of the blood test, he told me it was sepsis and prescribed antibiotic for the week. A few days later, he did another blood test again. At the end of the treatment, he was shocked how weak I was. And he was sure that had it been one day later, it would have been turned into a life-threatening situation requiring a much heavier treatment as we heard from all the others in this round. This summer, in 2018, I went back to the emergency room three times. After ridiculous injuries, the right side of my body got swollen again. No doctor could explain that. Since then, I have developed a new allergy against roses and I have problems with the right side of my body. This has been lasting for three years now. It is like sepsis. It is like sepsis has done something structurally wrong to my body. My hair has turned gray on the right side. I need a lot of exercise. Osteopathic treatments have helped me to reconnect the two sides of my body. Nevertheless, the right side remains very, very sensitive. And what is really important to me is that all doctors I was in contact with lacked up-to-date knowledge about sepsis and its possible consequences in the emergency room and in the general practitioner's area. They have to be trained with the latest knowledge about sepsis and picking up the symptoms much earlier. From what I know today, I was at the tipping point of a very slowly progressing sepsis and was very, very fortunate that my friend called me, asked in detail, and drew the right conclusions. There's no reason to die or lose limbs if symptoms can be recognized much earlier, blood tests can be taken, and antibiotics prescribed and administered timely. All these can save lives. And I... I think that empathic communication is the key. Once trained about sepsis, nurses and doctors need to help patients to find out on which pathway to sepsis they are, how advanced they already are, by asking questions, listening actively, not downplaying symptoms, drawing the right conclusions and decisions very fast. So this is elementary and can help spotting and treating symptoms at the earliest possible point. 
without delaying the process, which often leads to the ICU as we just listened. So the consequences of sepsis, you see the death of very hard and heavy personal and family impact. So thank you, Annette. Thank you. There is no reason to, to die or lose limbs if symptoms can be recognized easily. Blood tests can be taken, uh, antibiotics prescribed or administered. There is no reason to die. Thank you. I have nothing else to add. With that, I, uh, in fact, I would like to move uh, to our last speaker. Um, many of, of the patients are living with long COVID or post-sepsis syndrome. Sometimes it feels like as if the entire community or healthcare system or employees have forgotten about them. Long COVID recovery or post-sepsis syndromes are often dismissed or misunderstood. So that's how now I'm, I would like to invite and move to our last speaker. Last but not least is Elisa Perego. Elisa is uh, an honorary research associate at University College of London. Her more recent research focuses on health, disability, but also inequality in present and past societies. She desperately wants to draw some conclusions and maybe if we can learn something from the past to be able to move forward. Elisa is currently collaborating with a number of uh, advocacy and research projects for the recognitions of the long-term health effects of COVID-19 so-called long COVID, hashtag long COVID, she will tell us. She was in Lombardy region. Everyone knows in the world about Lombardy region at the start of the pandemic emergency. Last spring, she, she was down with COVID, um, didn't go, was not hospitalized and from which she's still recovering. Elisa, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, everyone, for uh the invitation to contribute to this panel and to the very moving stories that uh, were shared today. Uh, I was really, really moved to listen to every, everybody because uh, my story is so similar and also so different from uh, what I've heard today. And uh, as many of the people who spoke today, uh, my situation the gravity of my situation with the COVID-19 was not recognized at the beginning by medical professional. And this was what pushed me to go into advocacy for the recognition of the long-term effect of COVID-19. Last year, two years ago, I was living in Vienna and working as a researcher. And by chance, I went back to my native Lombardia in the winter of 2020 and I got uh, COVID when basically we didn't even know the virus was already here. And uh, I was reading already about uh, the publication from China because of my interest in uh, chronic illnesses from before. So when the symptoms started, I understood it could have been COVID, but there was no case still recorded in my city. And uh, as we have heard uh, from other speakers before, my condition started to get worse in the second week. And by the 10th day, 
I knew I was in, in a quite serious situation. I had a very bad lung pain. And on the 10th day, I started to have a severe respiratory distress. And because I was reading the publication, I knew what was going on. And so I phoned for the ambulance. But uh, I was told uh, it was not COVID. And uh, one of the problems was that uh, I didn't have uh, a very high temperature. And we talk about uh, how sometimes the symptoms are very high, the symptoms of infections. So it was not recognized how serious my situation was. And so the ambulance didn't come. And later that night, uh, I think my oxygen dropped so low that I couldn't stand anymore. And I had to go to bed. And I knew, basically, I could die, but I need it. And then it seems to be recovering. But then on the fourth week, the symptoms come back really strong. And I couldn't breath. Uh, I had all sorts of symptoms, mental confusion, weaknesses. And uh, I'm not going into detail because it's really too many symptoms, too many things. But again, I was in a very, very serious situation. But our healthcare system was completely overwhelmed. It was March 2020. So I couldn't go to the hospital. And uh, we know COVID comes in waves. You seem to be recovering and then you go down again. And then I develop uh, cardiac symptoms, extreme fatigue, cognitive problems extreme memory loss. For months, I couldn't remember even how old I was when I got my PhD. And uh, these symptoms changed over time. And uh, by six months into the illness, I started to develop arthritis, vomiting, all sorts of uh, these symptoms like almost an autoimmune disease. It seems like that, but we don't know what it is exactly. And uh, I started uh, around the seventh month to desaturate. You know, my oxygen was dropping again very badly, not always, but uh, generally on effort, down to 80%, which is life-threatening. And again, it was really difficult to get uh, an assessment because my city was then hit hugely in the second wave in Italy, even worse than in the first wave. And my situation has been up and down until in January 2021. So a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, I had uh, this situation which could not be evaluated uh, properly, but maybe I've been based on symptoms uh, diagnosed with uh, um, a clot in my lung and I could go to the hospital all, only a few days after the event where I was found to have uh, an elevated digimer, you know, which is a thrombotic marker. And I'm still recovering from this and I'm still not getting proper care. But this is just my personal story 
the difficulty to get recognition from medical professionals. Another thing I want to talk to is that uh, while I was trying to recover from the disease at home, I started to share about my symptoms on Twitter. And on Twitter, I found a big community because patients, people with COVID all over the world, were not hospitalized. They were told they had mild disease because they were not dying. They were not going to the ECU. But they were still quite ill. And they started to share on social media, such as Twitter, on Facebook. And so, all together, we built a community. And uh, we started to share different hashtags, such as long COVID, and to share our stories on Twitter. In just uh, three months after the long COVID hashtag, the long COVID name was used the first time in May 2020. Three months later, long COVID was uh, formally recognized by the World Health Organization. And I was in the team which uh, spoke to the World Health Organization on that day. And uh, as many of you know, uh, there's been huge discussion and huge recognition of long COVID across the world. But yet, the fight is not done. And even myself, uh, I wrote a scientific publication on long COVID. And this publication are uh, like literally quoted in the World Health Organization documents. And still, in my region, I can't get proper care. I'm still just getting aspirin, paracetamol, this kind of uh, medication, because there is not a clear understanding of um, how the sequelae of COVID-19 are very serious and can be life-threatening. And so what I want to tell to everyone is that as we, as the other speaker told us, there is a, a huge still misunderstanding in society about how long the long-term effects of infections such as COVID or sepsis or other infection are. And uh, despite all the discussion which is around, we still don't have enough recognition and we have to fight for that. And um, I, I work in history on disability in, in history as a researcher. And uh, we know that uh, periods of crisis or pandemics are periods of, of both crisis, but also of change. And I think with all this long COVID movement, all this discussion about uh, the long-term effect of infections. Here we have an opportunity also through media, the World Health Organization, to draw attention on how serious these pathologies and these chronic illnesses are. And so my message is uh, we have a chance to change, to make uh, society a bit more equitable, a medicine more empathic, as we said, toward the patients, because with long COVID, many patients like me, I, I mean, I'm an archaeologist by training, and I'm speaking at a medical conference. We uh, There is a, a wall breaking down. We have this opportunity, and I would like to bring this message to fight for more justice in healthcare. Thank you very much. 
thank you, Elisa. This has really been moving. I think maybe just to, to save time and we're, we are really behind the schedule, maybe we can still fix the, uh, the, um, the, the couple of questions. And what at the end I would like to uh, still uh, come up, uh, what really came up uh, out of the discussion share uh, with you, uh, audience. Um, maybe just um, looking at the question that I've received and, and uh, I could summarize uh, them. Um, Elisa, despite the growing recognition and the media attention, uh, what, are, uh, what still can be done? Uh, what are you asked to the medical government and uh, uh, medical community? Sorry, to the government and the medical community? We need, uh, first of all, formal recognition because there are countries in which long COVID is not recognized as an illness. There are no guidelines, so it's the same for me. If I go to the hospital, they don't really know what to do, even if I have, uh, as I said, elevated dimmer thrombotic parameter. They don't really, they are not giving me anticoagulation medication because we know acute COVID has this problem, but we don't really know about long COVID. So we really need the recognition. We really need uh, also to think about how to accommodate uh, the long-term you know, disability or illness, which is coming from this, because yeah, many of us can't really work. There are many of us who are uh, still in bed. And uh, we really need uh, this support for this and also prevention because many governments are not telling openly to the population to their citizen that you can get long covid you can get hugely sick after uh, even mild covid-19 thank you that's very helpful i'll be probably a, a bit more uh, dynamic here for everyone just maybe we can we can have another question i think the there, there was a question how do you have an idea how to put Long uh, the the uh, the post service or sequel also on the agenda, but I think that would set a precedent, and I'm sure that there's so many similarities there. So advocate, keep going, keep asking, and uh, um, advocate for yourself. Um, Mick, uh, Mick, uh, you chose to be strong and positive, and the question I have here coming and share your experience, um, and sorry, uh, and wanted you chose to stay alive actually. Uh, and uh, to see your your, your kids uh, grow, what um, what can be done to make your daily life easy? What are your asks? Make my daily life easier. <clears throat> it's just once you have a disability like I do, and you're in a wheelchair, it's hard to get around. So it would be good if there was at the forefront of people's minds of just for people with disabilities, it makes it easy for them to get around in the community. And that would be great if there was a lot of investment and awareness around that. Excellent. I think that's even should be mandatory in my view, if I was a president of a country. Katie, very quickly back to you. Um, you, you chose to be strong and positive and everyone loves you that you share the story and experience, but what is really going on, maybe in one word, can you take off the mask and you have this ICU clinician in front of you? They, they see, maybe some of them see the, the patients for the first time. Tell us what's really going on and what could be helpful, in fact, for the recovery. What are your asks? 
Um, I think that um, a focus on survivors, I, I think one of the things we hear a lot about the deaths caused, but there are a lot of survivors and there are survivors from sepsis, there are survivors from long COVID. And so we need good rehab programs and we need to be handed off well from one step to the next. And even though I was in one of the top rehab programs in the country, there were still things that were a little bit flawed about the system. Um, for instance, asking me while I was sitting in a wheelchair after I had just lost my legs, trying to determine what my um, what my ability to be rehabilitated was. There's a there's a rating that they give you. It's called a K rating, and um, they were asking me at this time in my life where I was so vulnerable. I I was. I didn't even imagine that I would be able to walk again. I was worried that they would give me prosthetics and I wouldn't even be able to use them. And they were trying to find out for me if I was going to be someone that was going to be athletic down the road or if I was just going to be walking to the bathroom. And I, I, it was the wrong time to ask me that question. They should have asked somebody else. They should have said, what were you like before or, or something like that. And I just feel like there, um, there isn't enough focus on, on this in, on after care and what happens after I leave the hospital. And um, just briefly, uh, I, I had problems. I have problems swallowing. Even today, I took a drink as I was walking into this room to kind of wet my my vocal cords, and I kind of choked on my water because I still have difficulty swallowing because of the intubation. So I have a lot of different symptoms that are not necessarily all being addressed. Thank you. So I, we have one question, maybe yes or no. Can COVID uh, cause sepsis? Uh, definitely. Sepsis, uh, COVID can cause sepsis. As Katie always said, that it can be a viral infection, it can be a bacterial infection. Sepsis is not a disease, it's a syndrome. It can cause uh, inflammation in the body and it can, cause, it can lead to multi-organ failure. I have seen uh, quite a number of patients because the patient with moderate to severe COVID pneumonia are admitted in the hospital and then they catch that hospital-acquired infection and went into septic shock. Uh, initially, they were with a single organ failure, like only the respiratory system was involved and then later on, that uh, the superadded bacterial infection from the hospital, they uh, or the devices which we use for them, like these BiPAPs and the other uh, vascular devices, can cause sepsis and it can be devastating to a patient with the COVID. Thank you. And probably before I, I, I close this session, uh, Zara and Annette, would you have any comments or would you like to add anything which has been said or has been overlooked? Zara, why don't you go first? Um, I guess my message is that healthcare workers need to know and need to be retrained in sepsis um, awareness as much as the public does. Um, they need to know the signs and symptoms from the get-go um, to so better than what they do now. And also the fact that sepsis occurs more commonly than what people think. Um, and no one talks about it, especially by name. And like I said, sepsis needs to be mainstream. It needs to be on the buses. It needs to be on advertisements, on the television. It needs to be everywhere so people can be more aware of sepsis. Can't agree more. Not only on the ambulances. It needs to be real yeah. in life. Yes, absolutely. Annette, any comments from you? It's it breaks my heart to listen to to these stories. It's it's neither rocket science we are talking about, nor something as complex as climate change. Um, actually, I think it's about empowering, just as Sarah said, and and awareness of sepsis, and applying knowledge about sepsis in the healthcare system and. Speaking from human to human, just 
like we do, listening, asking questions. And um, it doesn't matter whether you are a healthcare worker or patient, you need to be on an eye level to have a good response and to take responsibility. That's the other thing, to, to take decisions and react fast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, I would like to close now uh, the panel, but give me a couple of few minutes. First of all, I would like to thank all the panelists. You've really been amazing. Really, thank you. Uh, the transcendent point of, of today's discussion, or all today's story, is the powerful role of the patient and the family members. If family members are supported and empowered, they can contribute considerably towards helping the care system ICU function more effectively in the recognition, response, and sequela phases, help get better treatment and recovery. So what we ask is patients and families are readily available resources of information and support. They are there, which needs to be acknowledged by the medical community, policymakers, and empowered. So this was a great uh, discussion that really has shown that, firstly, education and empowerment of the general public is key so that people can know about sepsis, uh, know sepsis aftermath, and are able to act on this knowledge and advocate for themselves and their family. Sepsis needs to be known by its name and mainstream. Healthcare practitioners need to be retrained and retrained to know how to spot it as soon as possible. Rule sepsis in before ruling it out. Secondly, a cultural change in healthcare is required so that families and patient survivors are valued and treated as partners in healthcare. Empathetic communication is key, listening actively, not downplaying symptoms, taking patients or family members seriously. Patient-centered care and ICU should become a norm to make patient equal partners uh, everywhere globally. And thirdly, holistic post-sepsis and long COVID rehabilitation and aftercare is really required. Being deeply conscious uh, of people who are living in this condition and syndromes and disability. This is not, we're not asking just for another academic study. More resources to allow people to feel well and back into life again. And maybe they will pursue different professions, but that's what we need them. We need them back into the society. The COVID pandemic will be key moment in history, as it was mentioned. It is an opportunity to fight for a more sustainable and equitable society. One that is more supportive of people with disability and the survivors of severe conditions like sepsis and uh, like COVID. With that, I would like to thank the, um, all the sponsors and thank the audience and close this panel. Thank you. Take care and be safe. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making this Congress a success, especially the panelists you just heard. Session 8 was released today as well, and we will continue with Session 10 and 11 on June 1st. Until then, stay safe.